0: Is the message of the gospel and the kingdom inherently a political message? If so, what does that mean? What does it mean for the church to be subversive in today's polarized culture? How is the Christian message, both political and culturally, subversive and submissive to government at the same time? Lance these questions and more with our guest, Patrick Schreiner, and his new book entitled The Political Gospel. I'm your host, Scott Ray. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell. This is Think Biblically from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Patrick, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Good to be with you guys. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So tell us what motivated you to write on this subject, particularly at this time.
1: Yeah, so I started researching this book when it felt like we were in a lot of political turmoil, You know, you had racial tension in the U.S. Um, Donald Trump was elected. And I think a lot of people were looking at the church and just seeing a lot of division within the church around how to speak about these issues. And I I heard from a lot of pastors, honestly, that people were leaving their church because of politics. They either Mm -hmm. weren't political enough or they were too political. And it came ultimately down to... You know, the, the concept of political discipleship and what I mean by that is simply trying to follow Jesus in every part of our life, including how we think through secular governments. And so I looked around and there's a ton of good books on politics out there, but not as many, you know, my training is in New Testament studies, um, studying the scriptures. And not as many deal with really the New Testament or Old Testament text in terms of the political lives of Jesus, Paul, uh, the the church itself. And I think kind of the easiest way into this conversation for Christians is to go to the scriptures. But I also felt like we had blinders on in terms of how we read the scriptures that we don't see the political reality. And so really, hmm. I wanted to help the church, help pastors, think through political discipleship. And to do that, I wanted to take off kind of those blinders of, I feel like we've read the scriptures in in one way. And I said, well, let's look at it from this angle as well. Hmm. Another way to put this is, you know, we go to Romans 13 often to think about political discipleship when Paul talks about submitting to governing authorities. But I hope this book shows there's just a lot more in the scriptures than Romans 13. Romans 13 is important, very important. I deal with it. Uh, but there's a lot more than that. And so I want to open people's eyes to the wealth of um, resources we have within the scriptures themselves. So tell us what you mean by
2: the term political gospel. Again, of course, the title of your book and how you define politics.
1: Yeah. So political, I'm I'm using more of the ancient way of using the term because when people saw the title, a lot of them were like, are you arguing for partisanship? And that's <laughs> specifically what I'm not doing, if you read through the book, I'm not arguing for partisanship. Political goes back to the Greek word polis, which just means city. And so political honestly just means the organization of a city, the activities associated with the organization and governance of a people. So it has to do with who has the right to rule and govern us. How do we order our society? um, What happens in the public domain? And so really when I say political gospel, I'm saying our faith is a public reality And the way I set it up was, you know, often we think of our faith either as a private thing, an individualistic thing, or a partisan reality. So it was hard for me because I feel like that the at least people in the American church kind of fall off on one of those two sides of of the, the horse. But I was trying to carve somewhat of that third way and say it's truly political. It's not merely private or individualistic. And it's not necessarily partisan either. Rather, it the gospel message itself makes claims about who has the right to rule our life and how we're to order ourselves. And so that that's what I mean. You, you feel free to ask questions on that. But that's what I mean by political. I mean more the ancient way of using the word.
0: Uh, yeah, maybe maybe be helpful just really briefly to, to explain. You have a section in the book that explains what you don't mean by the term political gospel. Maybe. It's, spell out a couple of those things.
1: Yeah. So again, if you go back to kind of that partisan reality, I don't mean combining one's faith with one political party. I think Christianity transcends any political party, which sometimes is scary to people. It's like, what do you mean by that? Does that mean we can't vote? No, that's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is Christians, by the nature of what the gospel and the scriptures teach us, will be critical of ever every governing system in some ways, because hmm. no governing system is going to completely represent the kingdom of God. So while we can, um, it's okay to be aligned with a person, uh, par- uh, political party. Um, to solely align yourself with a political party and think that that is a embodiment of the kingdom of God is going too far. Hmm. And so we need to be careful with. Number one, not critiquing people for um, having some sort of political loyalty. I think that's okay. I I talk to a lot of people who work in the governing system, and they're like, are you saying we can't work for Democrats or Republicans? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, as a Christian, you need to recognize that they are not not the ones to bring in the kingdom of God. Rather, Jesus will do that. And really, our primary political uh, identity—this is jumping ahead—but our primary political identity— is found within the people of God and within mm. the church. And then the other thing I I don't mean by um, political is that also like a lot of people start to to think of the conversation around politi- um, Christian nationalism. And so I, I also don't mean that we are to um, make uh, the rule of God the law of the land in a holistic sense. And so when you hear political gospel, it's like oh are you are you saying like we should take over the government? We should have God's law rule our land. No, actually, that's actually not what I'm saying. We've seen how that's gone historically. I know there's some debate about that, but I don't think that's the way to go forward. it. doesn't seem like Jesus, nor the early church, was really that interested in unseating Caesar and putting their own uh, political rulers in place. Uh, Jesus' um, mission and vocation seemed to be very different than that uh, when he stood before uh, Pilate or Rome or the Sanhedrin. You know, he didn't seem interested in in getting them out of power, and neither did Paul. And so, I I don't mean those things by political. Um, I mean it is a public, truly a public reality. I think you should do
2: this, and you do, but it's kind of amazing how much time you've got to spend qualifying what you don't mean, which shows the amount of confusion we have about the intersection of politics and the gospel today and how much we have probably misplaced our allegiances. So those definitions are really helpful. Now, one of the ways you phrase this, I think, is creative is that people will leave their church over politics more than they will leave their politics for the church. Tell us what conclusions you draw from that.
1: Yeah, you know, I think politics, as especially people have become less religious, if you're just looking at the Kind of research um, across American life for the last fifty years or so, as pe- as people have become less religious, you know, we've had to find how we identify ourselves, and often, not solely, but often, people will now find their identity in a political party, and so we often see that mindset seep into the church to where. The political party or a political party becomes so much a part of our identity that if someone critiques that system hmm. or the, those governing authorities, we view that as a personal insult or a personal attack on our faith. And so, what happens is politics has become the new religion. And often we view these ruling authorities as kind of our new priests. And really, my book is trying to step in here and say, well, wait, Jesus came and he declared himself to be king. He declared himself also, he acted as a priest, and that this is our primary identity. Every other identity, or however you want to describe that, must be secondary. And so when I heard those stories from pastors about people leaving the church because it was either too political or not political enough, I think that was... And, and I experienced that even in our own church. Um, I think that was the signal for me that, okay, this has become too much of an identity marker for Christians. And the reality that it's very hard from yeah, I, my, my viewpoint is obviously limited, but it seems to be hard to find a church where you have people on different political spectrums worshiping together. Hmm. So how much are we dividing over this issue, which m- Means that we are making it a primary category by which we identify ourselves, and I don't. I don't want to see that division in the church continue. Now, I think there's room to have good debates about uh, voting for candidates and issues and where certain political parties are going. I'm not denying that. I'm really trying to set the foundation for how to think about these things from the scriptures. I don't. I don't get a lot into um in, like issues such as even abortion or immigration, or um do we. <laughs> Do we um, vote in a way where, well, this is the least worst option? I, d- I don't even get into those sort of things. Rather, I'm trying to frame how we think from the Scriptures using Jesus, Paul, and the early church as um, kind of our marching orders here.
0: I think, that, yeah, the way you've approached this, I think, is particularly helpful. It's a 35,000-foot level uh, view, and it's, it's it's very helpful without getting bogged down in the details. Uh, one of the things I think that you that's assumed— in the book, you defend it in the book, uh, but, I, but I think is unknown to a lot of people in our churches is how, how uh, religion and politics, or as you say, the public dimension of faith were intertwined so closely in the first century. Can you explain a little bit more how that was so? Yeah.
1: So if you even go back to the Old Testament, just the the literature that most Christians know, when you when you see Israel win, that was a sign that their God had won. Um, like a, a battle, when they win a battle or they win a skirmish with another nation. Um, but when they lose, you see that actually the other nation, like the Philistines and Dagon, they they believe their God has won. So really in the first century and the ancient Near East, the division that we have kind of put between religion and politics didn't exist in the same way. And so one, one of the clear ways to kind of um, wrap your head around this is, ask yourself, was Jesus a political figure or a religious figure? Hmm. And I think most of us would say, well, he's a religious figure, not a political figure. But I actually don't think that question would make any sense in Jesus's day. (laughs) He would have Hmm. looked at you and said, what are you talking about? Those two spheres just didn't, um, they weren't separate spheres. And I I think we actually see that's the case because even though Jesus comes before the religion, we could call them religious leaders, even though I don't even know if that's the greatest summary of who the Sanhedrin was and who the Sadducees were. Um, He also comes before Pilate and they're asking him questions like, are you you saying you're a king? And so you could see like the religious and the political are, are intertwining. And so throughout the book, I'm going through a lot of the language that Jesus or Paul uses to show you, we've kind of stuck them in this religious box, this spiritual box. But in Jesus's day in the first century, These were fully political terms, which is exactly why Rome was nervous about Jesus. (laughs) Exactly why Rome was nervous about Paul. I mean, I I just finished doing a a long commentary on Acts, and people forget that Paul was in prison and under trial for basically the last four chapters of Acts. And why is he on trial if it's purely a religious message? Mm. Like, why are they so concerned? Well, they're concerned about riots. They're concerned about... Acts 17, I think, is a classic text that I love to go to when Jesus, when Paul declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Those in Thessalonica say he has declared there is a new king that goes against the decrees of Caesar. And so very clearly, they're interpreting it politically. And now I use politically because that's our framework. But again, religion and politics were not two separate things for them. And so really, I want to show people through the New Testament that Paul and Jesus came with a very political message. Now we think, okay, well, what what are the implications of that? Jesus also submitted himself to the, to the Roman rulers. And so that's where you have to be careful. I, I feel like this conversation, you do have to have a lot of nuance. And really, we have to have a lot of nuance in terms of how we interact with governing authorities in our, in our own political lives as Christians. And that's why this conversation is very difficult. Patrick, you and I walked the same fall
2: with our doctorates from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary together, and uh, that's when we first met. And I mentioned that because my research at Southern was on the deaths of the apostles, and some have pushed back and said, well, they're not martyrs, it was political. And my response is, you cannot separate the religious from the political in the first century, And that clearly has strong overlap with what you're arguing, uh, how we approach this through the lens of the New Testament. It's so helpful. Now, you also insist that the term gospel has strong political meaning. How does an idea, gospel, obviously, depending on how we understand it, carry political connotations with it?
1: Yeah. So a lot of these words that, as I said, we put in kind of religious or spiritual boxes, in the first century, had a lot of political overtones. And so I look at terms like gospel, uh, euangelion in Greek, kingdom, um, faith, uh, church, ecclesia. And what's interesting is when you begin to dig into the, the literature around these terms, you begin to see that they're actually used both by Jewish authors and by Greco-Roman authors Mm. in a fully political way. And I think gospel is the best way to start because when we hear gospel, I mean, how many gospel-centered resources and ministries do we have? I'm very thankful for that. But in the first century, the gospel was a message, a declaration of victory that most often was related to an ambassador, an envoy, coming back from a battlefield and declaring the good news that their king or their nation had won the battle. Or it was used in relation to the birth of a new king who was going to bring good news. You know, I don't remember the details. This is kind of a funny example. But we have even in one, uh, I think it's an inscription or um, piece of literature where they're actually... (laughs) they're kind of playing around with the term gospel. The person comes back from the market and says, good news, the anchovies are back in the market. <laughs> it's, it's, this, it's this joke because you're not supposed to use good news with anchovies. Like it doesn't, it doesn't match. The good news is specifically tied to political victory. Now that's really hard for us to wrap our minds around because we use gospel in such a, the good news of Jesus's death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection, which uh, that's totally true. That's exactly how Jesus enacts his victory. But when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, all of those terms are very political. And I think immediately Rome's antenna is up and they're like, Okay, who is this guy? Uh, and what is he actually saying? Because Ultimately, they hang a sign above his head when he's crucified. This man declared he's the king of the Jews. They understood his gospel message was a declaration of victory. They understood his declaration of the kingdom of God is at hand is a fully political term. And again, when we think of kingdom, uh, we think of kingdom as purely God's reign in our heart. But for Israel to think of the kingdom is to think of city walls and gates and food and uh, uh, gates that keep out their enemies, and peace, and so forth and so on. And I, I don't think we need to uh, strip kingdom of its very earthy and political meaning when Jesus comes on the scene and declares the kingdom of God is at hand. That is a fully political message. Now, at the very same time, and the, this is probably the follow-up question that needs to happen, he redefines the politics itself. And so when he comes before the ruling authorities— they look at him and they say, this guy's innocent. That's exactly what Pilate says. Right. So how can Jesus's message both be political and they declare him innocent? Well, it's because it's a radically different
0: politic than they expected. They, they can't even recognize the politic that he brings in. So Patrick, how do you account for the, the, the notion that Je, when Jesus taught that his kingdom is not of this world?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Scott. I appreciate you asking that. And then I went to that text and I thought, wait, how do I understand this based on kind of what I'm presenting? Now, when Jesus says that in John, we have to ask, what does that mean that he says my kingdom is not of this world? Now, just to get a little uh, Greek Greek and uh, nerdy with you, uh, of is a genitive, right? And so what sort of genitive? uh, I think
0: our listeners need to know, (laughs) hang in there for the next 30 seconds. (laughs)
1: That's that's right. What sort of genitive is this? Well, I interpret it as a source genitive. The kingdom is not from this world. In other words, he's the king of heaven who is bringing heaven down to earth. What he's not saying is that I'm not bringing a message of a kingdom. That doesn't make any sense. He's saying the nature of his kingdom and the means by which he will bring it. Actually, if you look at the next verses, what does he say? If my kingdom was of this world, I would have formed an army. But look at my army. It's these 12 wimpy disciples. Like (laughs) They don't have swords or anything. I actually just told Peter to put away his sword in the garden. And so when he says my kingdom is not of this world, he's showing them the nature and the means by which my kingdom comes is not by the sword and not by the spear. It's actually by sacrifice. And Pilate looks at him and he's like, I think this guy's innocent. I I don't have anything against him. And so this is where it gets so complicated, but it's so helpful that Jesus just completely redefines the politics, the politic of Rome. He looks at Pilate and he says, you might rule um, by lording it over people but I'm going to rule by sacrificing myself on behalf of uh, on behalf of my own nation. And and Pilate just doesn't know what to do with that. And I know we've been talking mainly about the scriptures, but I think that's our, our marching orders as well. I think the world should look at us and say, I don't know what box to put you in. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. I, I think you're political beings, and I think you care about politics, but you don't fit in the categories that we have. And also... You're willing to suffer on behalf of your beliefs. And I think I think Pilate's response to Jesus, if we follow his footsteps, should be the same type of response that the world has to Christians.
2: Patrick, there's a certain tension uh, in a point that you're making where you say the Christian message is politically and culturally subversive, but also submissive to government at the same time. How can it be both? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so you go, again, we've been spending a long time with Jesus on trial and at the cross, but Jesus at the cross both submitted to the Roman government and by so doing started the timer on the end of all human government. So it was the most subversive act he could ever do. So what happened on the cross is Jesus was ultimately crowned the king of the world. And I think we see that in the Great Commission. After Jesus is raised from the dead in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me because of his sacrifice. In other words, that's comes, that comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. He is the true ruler of heaven and earth. Now, how did that happen? It came through his submissive action to the Roman government. And I think Paul <laughs> Paul, is looking at Jesus' action and he's saying, uh, you in Rome, who are actually living in Rome, you need to do the exact same thing. You need to submit to the Roman government. And by so doing, you're actually showing them a new politic, a new way of living, a new kingdom. So it's both subversive and submissive at the exact same time. Peter, 1 Peter 2, he says the same thing. It's 1 Peter 2, 17. What does he say? He says, um, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And think about everything he just did in those four little commands. He just told everyone to honor the emperor. In other words, treat him with respect. And I think we, that, that is a command we need to heed. But he also said, honor everyone. So at the same time of telling everyone to honor Caesar, he told people to honor the slave in the same way. And that the emperor would have read that. He wasn't reading these these letters. But if he would have read that, he would have said, great. And wait, I'm confused. You're supposed to honor me above everyone else. Wow. So it's both submissive and subversive. But notice in the middle, he says, fear God and love the brotherhood. You need to reserve a special place in your heart for God's people and God himself. You honor everyone.
0: You fear God and you love the brotherhood. So, Patrick, what would it mean today for the church to be politically and culturally subversive and submissive to government at the same time? Yeah, in, in our in our polarized environment.
1: Yeah, um, man, that's such a it's such a good question, and I think it's so hard for me to answer, not knowing everyone's specific situation. So, I feel like I do have to speak in generalities, but um, maybe I'll give you the most broad answer I can, um, go to church. (laughs) I know that sounds like not what you're asking, but honestly, I think we are formed the most in our political stances by being linked with other believers in a church that is preaching the gospel, and we are reminding ourselves of our true allegiance. So what I try to do in the book is, again, I try to um, actually take us to church again and recognize all of the acts that we're doing We're singing songs, we're going through rituals, we're watching baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're taking part in that. We're um, opening a a law book or a constitution. We're reminding ourselves of what our King has commanded us to do. We're going out with his commands, trying to embody what he has said for us to do. If you put it in that frame, that gathering is a very uh, political gathering in, in the best sense of the term. And it's forming us to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Just like, you know, when we sing the national anthem at a sports event, that's bringing mm-hmm. unity to the people there, ideally, right? It's supposed to bring unity to say, hey, we are all a part of this nation. And so we sing the national anthem, or we, we watch a flag, right, being raised. And that's a sign of unity. In the same way, we, we have different sort of rituals that Christ has commanded in the church, to form us into his image. And so how do we be most politically subversive and submissive? I think we remind ourselves uh, of our calling as, as the kingdom of God here upon this earth. Patrick,
2: do you think there's a place for imposing a Christian ethic by the force of law today? And if so, what might that be?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Sean. Uh, I think it depends what we're speaking of. And so I think we'd all... Agree? We would want to impose what I would call a Christian moral ethic of, let's say, um, we are against murder. We we want to be that for for that to be in the law code, right? And so I will, I'll use a, a larger term, but in terms of like natural law, I do think we want to follow and actually continue to advocate for things that align with the Christian tradition. Now you said by force. Uh, We are a democratic society, and we do that by voting and and by changing laws. And so I don't think we should do that by force. I think it's very clear. I mean, I already alluded to this, but in the garden, Peter pulls out his sword, and he cuts off a man's ear, and Jesus says, put your sword away. This is not how my kingdom comes. So I don't think we do that by force. Now, you go back to something like the civil rights movement. They, they didn't do that by force, though. They made changes by nonviolence and by peace. And so I think that is more how we should continue to try to influence the nation towards what we think will bring the most flourishing to humanity. Now, this is a very complicated discussion. I don't think all of um, Christianity, though, or Christian law should be enforced in a nation state. And so we have to go to different ethical issues and decide whether this is something that should be true for all people at all times and all places or whether this shouldn't be um, in the law so to say because at that point you're tipping into we need to create whatever nation we live in as a type of Christian nation and i think that's actually a contradiction in terms so
0: yeah part, part of the reason for the question is i think i think someone could conclude from your book that there that there's virtually no place for using the the law to uh, to promote a, a dis, any kind of distinctively Christian ethic, um, but that's clearly not not what you're suggesting. Um, there, the, as you've made clear, there are some places where using using the law uh, to enact you know things that are specifically and distinctly Christian can be appropriate, though that's right. not you know not probably not as widespread as some people would like to see. That's right. So yeah. One, one, one final question for you. Well, if you if you give the, the church one piece of advice today in the current cultural and political environment that we're in, what would it be? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's a very famous phrase,
1: but I feel like it's a helpful one. Um, just be a non-anxious presence. We, we don't have to be concerned and so wrapped up in what's happening in the secular government because we have a greater hope. And we know that Christ is king. You know, our gospel message is Jesus is Lord. And not only is he Lord, he's Lord of lords and King of king. And so while we should care um, about, and, and while we should care about what's happening in our secular government, because it, it, it does affect people's lives in a very real way, and I want to be sympathetic to that. At the same time, our hope is not placed in any of any of these systems. Our hope is placed in the kingdom of God. And so, in that sense, we can have we can be calm and carry on. In that sense, right? We can we can um, speak about these things and say these are important, um, but not lose our minds over them.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's that's a good word on this. And I think I want to commend to our listeners your book. The Entitled "Political Gospel," subtitled "Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World." It seems to me that uh, this, some of these things about the political, the public slash political nature of Christian faith, are maybe a little tougher to put our arms around in a in a liberal democracy like we have here, uh, and easier to grasp, you know, with people who live in live under totalitarian governments, where the threat. Uh, to a totalitarian government from somebody proclaiming Jesus as Lord would have been very similar to the threat imposed to the Roman Empire by the early church's proclamation that Jesus is Lord, because they saw that as as an inherently public-slash-political statement. Um, And so I I think for our our readers and listeners, it's really helpful, I think, that what you're talking about here is not a privatized faith, not a partisan faith, but a public one, that has a lot to say about how we order our lives together in community, which makes that, in my view, a f- fundamentally a moral enterprise uh, that is, is fully uh, the business of our Christian faith. So we are, we are so grateful for your book. Commend it to our listeners. of a political gospel. Uh, and make sure, you, when, when you get into it, make sure you re- are really clear on, his, on how he's defining politics, because it's not partisan. And so, we, Patrick, we so appreciate your time with us. Uh, this has been a, so rich, and the book—you know—the book just has so has so much more than we've had time to touch on today. So, thanks very much for your work and for your time with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Blessings to you. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including the new fully online bachelor's in Bible theology and apologetics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our friend Patrick Schreiner, give us a rating on your podcast app and please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.